I thank you all for coming here tonight. And the first thing that I want to say in regards to all the recording devices that are on me, tonight's message will be available for you to pre-order, and we can send it to you. So you just see us at the table out there when we're done. Um, I want to thank you guys for being here, and I want to thank the Hope and Passion Ministry team. There are some particular people that have really helped with this event. I don't know how many of you know, Bria and Karen are standing in the back. Look at them. Not even listening. They don't need the message, do they? Okay. Karen Fulton and Bria Craycraft, uh, the biggest thing that they do together and corporately is they put up with me, which is a huge job, as you can imagine. I'm very high maintenance. Uh, Bria, you see, you know, she does a lot of the technical stuff on the website and a lot of the advertising and, and carrying around the books and setting them up for us and all that good kind of stuff. Karen does a lot of the behind-the-scenes things um, with the – the taxes and the IRS and the payroll and all that stuff. So she works hard in a lot of ways. We're carrying a lot of things. We're a small team that does a lot of work. So I'm thankful, very thankful for them. I'm thankful for, uh, specifically for this event, I'm thankful for Sharon Ross, uh, Marty Rogers, uh, Jennifer Faru, Kathy Bozzarelli. There's a, there's a group of people that gather around the Hope and Passion Circle and really help us. Kathy Bozzarelli is one of my prayer partners. How many of the rest of you are prayer partners with me? You don't know what it means. I know, Barb, yeah, you talk a lot, Mary Jane, to have you guys praying. And um, tonight I know that I am, I am so confident about what God is going to do in tonight's message. I can't even tell you. I am so confident that God brought exactly the right people to this place. I know many of you, some of you I've just met for the first time. There are people who are here because it's been advertised on the Internet that have never come to Hope and Passion before. There are people here because it was up in my second home. Now, I have two second homes, Wendy's Restaurant in Irwin and the Norwin Public Library. And I have a friend here tonight. Somebody came because it was advertised at my favorite place, Norwin Public Library. So this is really cool. God brought exactly the people here that he wanted to be here for this message this evening. And if you would go ahead and bring up the title slide there, Dana. Thank Dana Rogers for working the sound. This message tonight is called Grace Greater Than Karma, Understanding How God Works with Defective People. Now, how many of you think that's an exciting title? Because, now, amen. I mean, seriously, let's get excited for a minute. How many of you are glad that God works with defective people? Does anybody feel defective? Let's give God a big hand. Amen. All right, I have to be one of the most defective people in the entire universe, and I was so thankful when God laid this message on my heart. Now, how many of you have ever heard of karma? Okay, I polled my youth group this past Wednesday just to see if I was right about this. I fear that the word karma has been misunderstood by many, many people. And we use the term, even in the church of Jesus Christ, we talk about karma. And I ask the young people, how many of you know what that is? And they all raise their hand. We know what it is. We study it in school all the time. I said, really? What is it? Well, what goes around comes around. You've got to work out your bad karma. You gotta live a few lives and work it out, you know, you get you you get whatever your actions deserve. And so they understand that. Listen, I praise God Almighty that grace is greater than karma. Amen? 
That is what we're thankful for tonight. I praise God Almighty that God works with defective people and does not leave me stuck in my cycle of sin. Amen? When we were praying in the back room, the thing I prayed was, I was like, God, we thank you for your power. When we see a thunderstorm, when we see an earthquake, when we see how God moves the galaxies and the heavens and holds the stars in place, we get a taste of how powerful God is. But there is no greater power than God that God has than the power to change the human heart and make somebody brand new. Amen? And His power, the power of the Holy Spirit, is in this place tonight. God wants to move and show you that there is hope for you. Whether you call yourself a Christian tonight or you don't call yourself a Christian tonight, there is hope for God to make you who you're supposed to be. Amen? How many people, you know, don't raise your hands, but I would say, how many people in this place, you even say, I have a relationship with God, I call myself a Christian, but I still feel very defective, okay? There's a lot of us. God is here to work on this. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus stood up when he was in the temple, when he came to this earth, and he quoted from the book of Isaiah. He unrolled a scroll, and he told the people that he was fulfilling what that scroll said when he stood up and said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The gospel is the good news. Amen? I don't know what you came in with tonight, what drew you to this place, what confusion may be in your heart, how defective or hopeless or lost in some kind of cycle you feel you are, but I'm here to tell you that the Holy Spirit is preaching good news to you tonight. He came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. Amen? And that's what's going to happen this evening. So we're thankful that God's grace is greater than karma. Now, before I go on to explain karma, I'm going to invite you, if you would, to bow your heads with me and to pray. And I want you to be participating in this prayer. So bow your heads with me. Participate in this prayer and in your heart. No matter how much or how little you may know about God, let's go to him and let's ask him to meet us where we are tonight. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And we need you in this place. And we believe in your power. And God, I particularly know that you know how hopeless the human heart can feel when we think we will never be released from our sins, from our past, from the bad stuff that we have collected in our lives. You know how hopeless we can feel when we don't truly understand grace. You know how hopeless we can feel because we are broken, fallen people. And our defectiveness can sometimes make us feel hopeless. And the enemy of our soul can use that against us and cause us to want to give up. But you, God, are for us. And you don't want us to give up. You want us to understand what it is that you do in the human heart. So I'm just asking you right now, God, to be here with us, to speak and to show us your truth and to set people free from any hopelessness that they feel because of their own lives, their defectiveness, their sins, their tendencies. God, we know you're greater. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Okay. Now, you've been given a, a handout, an outline. You know, I tried to provide it so you could jot down some notes if you wanted to. You can, you can get this on tape. You can, I, what I tried to do is give you the main titles and give you the main scriptures related to them. Karma. Let's start with that. An official definition of karma from the Oxford American College Dictionary is, when we speak about it in related to Hinduism and Buddhism, it's the sum of a person's action in this and previous states of existence viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. Or informally, it's fate. It's following as effect from cause. Now, young people in our culture today, generally, when they report it to me, they say, Mrs., they say, Shelley, we understand karma to be what goes around comes around. We understand that history is cyclical and that people end up having to pay for what they've done in previous lives. I'm going to draw this whiteboard over here, bring it here, because I just might get a little radical and actually start writing, you know, drawing some things. All right. Then I went to dictionary.com and got the most current definition that I could get. And it says, can all of you people over here still see the screen? If I put it here, Johnny, you're going to have to move. That's my brother. I can tell him to move. You got a problem? Get a move. How about you two back there? Okay. I'll be kind with you. This is my brother, so he can, he can do what he has to do. Okay. Hinduism or Buddhism? Okay. Um, it's an action. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, the Bradleys don't mind moving, do you? Okay. See, John, you can join the Bradleys. Okay. It's an action seen as bringing upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in reincarnation. It's a cosmic principle according to which each person is rewarded or punished in one incarnation according to that person's deed in a previous incarnation. Now, I want you to understand something. The culture today, the movies that the kids are watching, the influence that we're under, not necessarily academically, a lot of the academics today, a lot of the colleges and universities are secular in nature, atheistic. But the culture, like Disney movies, all right, and all kinds of things that your children are being exposed to in songs and music and television are new age in nature. And that's pantheism. We won't go into big detail about that, but I want you to understand one thing. Pantheism, or the New Age movement, sees history as being cyclical. It just keeps going around and around and around. And so what people are starting to believe is your bad actions return to you, not only in this life, but in your next life. Can you imagine all right, this is what people believe, that you have to pay for your actions. And it's not a person that's making you pay for them. It's a cosmic principle. See, with the New Age movement, there is no personal God. It's just the ultra-consciousness, the great spirit in the sky, the force with a capital F. He is not a person. It is a force. So you're not talking about an individual with a will trying to give to somebody what they deserve. You're just talking about this heartless, personless principle just working in the world. Could you imagine if you thought your whole life depended on just a personless principle that was going to continue to give back to you bad for all the bad that you do? How many of you would think you'd be in trouble? All right. 
You have to pay for it in this life, and you have to cycle back in another life. And I mean, people really do. They believe in reincarnation. Now, just so you know, the word incarnation means in the flesh. Flesh has to do with incarnation in the flesh. So many people believe in reincarnation in today's culture. That you will come back with a better or lesser life depending on how good or bad you were in this life. Doesn't that sound like fun? Uh, that's really something. And that's, that's a cycle that you would really, really get stuck in. Because I don't care how many lifetimes you give Shelly Prindle, I know I can't be any better on my own. I'm stuck in the cycle. Without God's help, I know I can't be any better. And I'm feeling very hopeless about this. But the Bible tells us that the cycle can be broken. Amen? Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, and and this scripture I just realized in studying for this is a direct rebuttal against karma. Paul said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Watch this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, has knocked this cycle out, has cut it up. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, here's the thing. Karma has nothing to do with the personal God of the universe. And if you feel condemned by your actions, if you feel stuck in a cycle, if you fear for what's going to happen to you in the next life, you need to hold on, you need to listen to what the Word of God says because it, it is directly opposed to the law of karma. Now, I want to I iron out a few points for you, okay? Grace versus karma. Here's what I would say to that. Here's how we compare God's grace to the law of karma. Number one, God's grace is not impersonable, impersonal, and they are not inevitable results based on my actions and my incarnations. God is a person. God has a will and he loves. He's not a cosmic principle. So he knows you. This is not an impersonal force. This is the God of the universe. He's a person. And the results are not inevitable. And everybody said, Amen. If you got what you have coming to you, well, let me put myself in that spot. If I got what I have coming to me, guess what happens to me? I'm dead. I'm dead. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is Death. Now, this is a little tricky here. I want you to think. There is only one truth, and it comes from God. Everything else is a perversion of God's truth. So when you look at the law of karma, you see an offshoot or a perversion. You see hints of the real truth in it, don't you? Because the, the, the wages of sin, according to God, is what? Death. And in karma, we have people believing that you have to die, and then keep working it out. So there's a hint of the truth in it, but it's a perversion of the truth. If I got what I deserved, I'm dead, and I praise God, we don't get the inevitable results of our bad actions. Amen? Now, we also do not get reincarnated to pay for things. And you might want to note down, I don't know if I put this on the sheet or not, but Hebrews 
chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man or a woman to die once and then face judgment. Guess what? And I'm thankful for this. I only get to die one time. All right? You don't die many times. You don't keep cycling back around, wondering what you're going to be or what kind of life you're going to have the next time. Only one incarnation for a human being. Now, second of all, when we talk about grace versus karma, God is personal. And I love this. He intervenes because of his incarnation. Isn't this interesting? The perversion of human reincarnation comes from a real truth. And the real truth is that God did incarnate. Are you with me? The God that you cannot see 2,000 years ago put on human flesh and invaded the space-time continuum and became a person in the flesh. It's His incarnation that saves me, not my continual reincarnation. I need somebody perfect to come incarnate to pay for my sins. Because no matter, and that's what I said before, no matter how many times I spin back around, I'm still dirty, rotten, Shelly Prindle. And you might be looking at me saying, look at her in her nice white shirt and her curly hair. Stacy loves my curly Look at her naturally curly hair. Oh, look at that dimple. Oh, my. I am a jerk. All right? On my own, without God, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And I don't care how many times you cycle me back around, I'm going to come out exactly the same without God. Amen? So this is about God and His incarnation. There is a God who works with you in this life in a personal, loving, relentless, and direct way. And then finally, I would say this, change, unlike karma, which takes forever, and I don't know how many lifetimes you have to circle back around. I mean, I'm just knowing some people, and I'm thinking, man, (laughs) you know, the whole thing is just crazy, you know. Is that butterfly out there? Is that my aunt, you know? Okay, but anyway, change is miraculous, and it's a result of God's work, not human effort. It's miraculous. It happens suddenly. And it's a result of God's work. What I'm telling you is, you don't have to cycle back 300 times. The Holy Spirit can change you this evening in this room. Before you leave here tonight, you can be totally changed. Isn't that amazing? And so this whole thought of karma, remember, what the enemy does is he takes the real truth and he perverts it. But you can see threads of God's reality in that. So as far as grace versus karma... Grace is so much better. Grace is so much different, isn't it? Now, some of you may not have a lot of experience learning about grace, but you're going to find it out tonight. The cycle is broken. What we're going to do, just so you understand, is I'm going to take you to one particular individual in the Bible whom I have studied and prayed over. God has just drilled this into my heart. Instead of trying to take it broad and do many things, we're going to go to one particular person in the Bible, and I'm going to show you how one of the messiest, hopeless, defective people in the Bible is one of the greatest examples of the hope that every human being has, all right? And his name is Jacob. We're going to get to him in a second. You're going to see him like you never saw him before. Before we go to him, though, when I teach Christian apologetics, and I don't know if any, does anybody know what Christian apologetics is? Yeah. Okay, three people. That's good. All right. Christian, yeah, don't be afraid. Christian apologetics is defending the Christian faith from an intelligent or reasonable perspective. 
In other words, I didn't just stand in front of people and say, well, it's true because I feel it to be true. Well, I may feel it to be true, but there are facts. There are reasons to believe in God and in the Bible. And I teach courses on that. We've done months and months of this in our own church. And as part of that apologetics course for the Bible, I give reasons to believe that the Bible truly came from God and did not come from human authors. Now, if you've never heard of that stuff before and you're interested, you get on Hope and Passion's website. We have them downloadable for podcasts every session that I teach about this. If you have any doubts that the Bible's from God and not, and not the hands of human beings, you need to learn that. One of the reasons that we give, other than fulfilled prophecy and the Bible's unity and archaeological evidence and all kinds of stuff, one of the reasons we give to know that the Bible's really from the hand of God is its brutal honesty. Now, really, if I were going to invent a religion, I would not make its heroes a bunch of losers. Amen? If you're going to write a story, and you're going to write this story about this great and wonderful God who can do amazing things, you would not have his key people, his worshipers and his followers, be a bunch of morons. Would you? It just doesn't make sense. And the Bible's brutal honesty is one of its greatest evidences that this is not man-made because our tendency is to make ourselves look good. Our tendency is to make our heroes big and strong and perfect because we all want to be like them. Amen? The Bible does not do that. The great theologian and apologist Norman Geisler said, whatever weaknesses they may have had, the biblical authors are universally presented in Scripture as scrupulously honest And this lends credibility to their claims, for the Bible is not shy to admit the failures of God's people. Now, I joke about this, and we laugh about it a little bit, but I want to say something. If you're here tonight, and you feel like a failure, in in whatever sense you feel it, morally, emotionally, intellectually, if you are here tonight and you feel like a failure, God is for you. Amen? God has never in his existence worked with a perfect person. Because there are no perfect people. Just a bunch of defective, mixed up individuals that God works with. And his brutal honesty is one of the greatest evidences that his word is from him and not us. Listen, how many of you have ever heard of Moses? Okay, Moses, the guy who led the Israelite nation out of slavery in Egypt. The Exodus, man. We're talking Exodus here. Moses, the guy who received the Ten Commandments, when he was up and coming and realizing who he was, was out one day watching one of the Hebrew people being abused by his own hand, killed and murdered an Egyptian. The guy's a murderer. And he received from God the Ten Commandments, and everybody knows who Moses is. We write, you know, we have movies about him. Amen? The man is a murderer. Okay? And he murdered, and then when God finally called him to do what he had to do, he was like afraid, and God, I can't talk in front of people. What am I going to do? So he was a little bit, you know, a little bit shy, a little bit cowardly. He was a murderer. Then you've got David. Now, I don't know who's my, I don't know who I like better, David or Peter. I like them both. I like Peter because he's like so type A personality. And I just, I believe Peter had curly hair. That's just my feeling. But anyway, 
David, okay, I like David too. David, King David, I mean, he had so much faith in God that he slew Goliath by God's power. Remember that? We teach all the children about, oh, David and Goliath, you know. Then David becomes king of Israel. He wrote so many of the Psalms in which we find comfort. But do you remember what David did when he became king? After he was a Christian, I'll emphasize this, after he was a Christian, in a moment of weakness, he committed adultery. And he was so embarrassed by it, he tried to cover it up and had the woman's husband murdered. We have a Christian man who is an adulterer and a murderer. And my Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Amen? And I'm going to emphasize that again because this tonight is about the Holy Spirit working in some people's hearts. Nobody may know the depths of where you've gone and your sinfulness, but I'm here to tell you something. You may very well be a man or woman of God after God's own heart, even though you have failed and God wants to redeem you. He wants to bring you back. The disciples, these guys amaze me. If the Hope and Passion Ministry team did this to me, I'd be like, come on. You know, your dearest friends, they walked with him. They hugged him. They saw him. They ate with him. And he kept telling them, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise again. And when his day came for him to face every difficulty he had to face, what did they do? Every single one of them ran away. They were great, brave, and courageous followers, weren't they? And we kick ourselves and are very hard on ourselves. And somehow in the church, we have come to think that serving God means perfect people go to church and do perfect things and live perfect lives. And if they don't, God can't use you. And the enemy loves that because nobody's doing anything for God because we're all failures. What about the Apostle Paul? Not only was he a murderer, he was a murderer of Christians. He purposely went about and murdered and persecuted Christians, and God used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Amen? Okay? The Bible is full of losers. And the sanctuary tonight is full of losers. Yeah. I love it. Okay, you can all go home now. That was the message. Everybody excited? All right. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you to Acts chapter 3, verse 13. I believe Peter is preaching the sermon here. And we won't go to the whole verse, but I want you to see what Peter calls God. Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, in what way does God choose to identify himself? What is one of his titles? I want everybody to say this with me. I'm going to say it one time, then I want you to repeat it with me because you've got to get it in your head. God chose to, one of his names to be the God of Jacob. Everybody say it with me. He's the God of Jacob. In Psalm chapter 46, the Bible says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Nice. Nice title. Kind of weird, though, when you think about it because of what I'm going to show you. God identifies himself, chooses his name to be the God of Jacob. Now, this touches me, and I'm going to show you why in a minute. I can't believe, now, it's not in the Bible. God hasn't titled himself that in the Bible and recorded it for us. But I know that God in heaven would say, I am the God of Shelley Prindle. That amazes me. 
Why would he say that? Now, it should amaze you that he said that about Jacob. Because watch this. What a name Jacob is. Okay, here's how Jacob got his name. Uh, and before we go to that verse, just let me, on the whiteboard here, let me show you something for those of you who may not be totally familiar or need a little Pentateuch refresher. Okay, now watch this. The father of the Jewish nation is Abraham. All right? He was called by God to father God's chosen people. Abraham's son was Isaac. And Isaac's son was Jacob. Now, Jacob, he had other sons too, but he had Jacob and he had Esau. They were twins. All right? Twin brothers. Not very much alike, but twins. So with that in mind, Rebecca, Jacob's wife, had these twins. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. And and let me just back up and say something. The Old Testament is not fairy tales. This is historical fact. All right. This is an actual birth. So the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Wow. Could you imagine everybody gathering around the crib? Oh, what a cute little baby. What a cute little red hairy man you have there. Okay. That's just, okay. I don't know how cute Esau was. But anyway, um, they called him Esau. His name Esau and his descendants after him, the Edomites, it has to do with the color red. Okay. In biblical days, people's names were actually part of their character. Right? I don't know why my parents called me Shelley. I know my dad wanted to name me Tanya. My maiden name is Terman, Tanya Terman. I mean, thank God for my mother. She has a little bit of sense. Today we just name kids because it sounds so nice. Sorry. Back then, your name actually had to do with who you were. So Esau was Esau because he was red and hairy. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So the younger twin, when he actually came out of the womb, was holding on to his brother's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The name Jacob literally comes from the idea that this boy at his birth, his character was revealed. He is going to be grabbing on to the heel of his older brother. And God was revealing right there part of Jacob's character. Now watch this. The word Jacob in the Hebrew literally means he takes by the heel, he cheats, or he supplants. Now, to supplant means that you take something by force that doesn't belong to you through lying or cheating or force. So, here comes, you know, poor Rebecca. Can you imagine? I have one little twin, and he's a hairy little man. Okay? And I have the other twin, and he's a cheater and a liar. Whoa, I did good today. All right? So, he's Jacob and Esau. So, Esau is red and hairy, and Jacob is a liar. He's a cheater. He's somebody who is going to scheme and try to take what doesn't belong to him through force and lying and deception. But God chose to call himself what? The God of the liar. The God of the schemer. The God of the cheater. The God of the guy who twists and perverts the way things are really supposed to happen and tries to do it on his own. That's how God chooses to identify himself. 
Frank Boyd, in his book, Old Testament Studies, says Jehovah sometimes speaks of himself as the God of Jacob. This very title is a commentary on God's condescension, patience, and long-suffering with the plotting, scheming, deceptive worldling. God would have to be a God who reaches down into the mud and disgust of our sinfulness to deal with us. Amen? Because he's the God of Jacob. Now, let's talk a little bit about the struggle that went on between Jacob and Esau. Apparently, Rebecca, now I've never, I've never born any children of my own, so I don't know what this is like, but apparently Rebecca, when she was having these twins, sensed in some way that there was something going on in there. Some kind of struggle was happening with the twins. And so she actually went to God and she prayed and she said, God, what's going on? And this is what God said to her in the second part there. God said, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So right there, God himself was turning things up the upside down. Now, I want to tell you this because in biblical days, you have to understand, the older brother got the inheritance and the full family line. Every blessing that belonged to the family went to the eldest. It was very, very important to get that inheritance. The whole future kind of rode on the older, the oldest of the sons who would carry on whatever was given through the family line. Now, that's very important here. And what God was saying is, I'm going to turn things upside down, and I don't want it to be the older brother. It's going to be the younger brother who's going to get that. But nonetheless... God said, Rebecca, there's literally two nations in your womb. And to this day, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and the Israelites are enemies. That's biblical. Everything, God has it all under control. All right? So there was a struggle. Now, the other problem was there was favoritism. How my mom and dad claim that they don't have a favorite child? I know that they do. And I know it's not me. Right? I just got to say that. Johnny knows that it's not him. And we have three kids in a family, and I'll leave you to decide who you think is the favorite. But we know it's not us. But this is a problem. Parents should not favor children. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. So Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of not. Because Isaac should have listened to God. And not favored one son over the other, especially since it was God's plan that Jacob be the man. But Esau kind of lived a little, or Isaac lived a little bit in the flesh, and he thought, well, I like to hunt. I like the good suit after he prepares. You know, I want a manly man. And isn't that something how we as humans just kind of want what we want? Not necessarily what God wants. So there was favoritism that went on, and that caused more trouble uh, in the struggle because Jacob was a mama's boy and, you know. I picture him being like me, like Norman Public Library would have been one of his favorite places. You know, his dad wanted him out hunting. Okay, so anyway, now let's get into the nitty-gritty. If you have ever felt like a failure, if you have ever felt like the whole path of your life is the wrong direction, how could God ever use me? Look at what a mess I am. I want you to look at what Jacob does. I want you to see how the actions of his life very much match up with the name that God gave him, a liar and a cheater and a deceiver. Now watch this. There came a day when Isaac, their father, he was 60 years old when he bore them, when when Rebecca bore them, and he became older, 
to the point where he couldn't see anymore. His eyes grew dim and he was blind. And he didn't know how long it would be before he died. Now, he actually wasn't on his deathbed. He did live some years after this. But he was blind and he obviously wasn't well. And here's what happened. We're going to fast forward and we're going to move backwards after we do this. We're going to fast forward to Isaac being blind and being afraid he might die and wanting to officially pass the blessing on to Esau. Now, he should have not done that. Don't get me wrong. Because God said that Jacob was to, to be the, the one that was served. But Isaac was going to bless Esau. Already in the past, years before this, Jacob had already cheated Esau out of his birthright. But we'll go back to that. First, I want you to watch Jacob's actions. And I want you to understand, Jacob is not a 10-year-old here. Jacob's at least 100 years old when he does this. So you can't look at him and say, oh, he's still just a kid. Okay? And how many of you, you know, I was talking to someone about this, and it's like, do you think by the time you're 100, you would have worked things out with God? You would have grown up. How many of you, though, if I asked you to raise your hand, would say, I'm 44 years old, and I still haven't worked everything out with God? So Jacob is at least 100 years old. Watch this. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I'm old, and I don't know the day of my death. So take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me that I may eat so that my soul may bless you before I die. So this father saying, Esau, I still want to bless you. And I love your food, so would you go out and hunt me some game and prepare it, and I'm going to bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca, remember, Rebecca favored Jacob. So Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for the game and bring it, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Okay, now listen to this eavesdropping. This goes, this goes south really, really fast. She says, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat and bless you before I die. Now, therefore, my son Jacob, his mother said, obey my voice as I command you. No grown adult should be obeying anybody's voice but God's voice alone. When somebody says that to you, look out. Rebecca said, Therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. You go to the flock and bring me two good young goats. Because, you know, she was a good cock. She's thinking, instead of him having to go out and get wild game, just bring me two of the goats and I'll prepare them the way I know your father likes them. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Okay. So you would think, Jacob, you know, God refers to himself as the God of... Jacob, Jacob, he's one of our forefathers. This is a good guy here. Certainly when his mother says, let's lie to our blind father. My husband, your father, he's blind. He's afraid he's about to die. He's probably laying in a bed somewhere, can't even see. And the mother says, let's go lie and scheme and let's pretend you're Esau and steal from your father. You would think that Jacob would say, 
But, Mom, we can't do that. That's bad. We shouldn't lie to our father who's blind. He thinks he's going to die. That's my dad. We shouldn't do that, Mom. Don't you think that's what he would have said? Because, after all, God refers to himself as the God of Jacob. I love it. I love this. Okay, watch this. But, Mom, we can't do that. I'm horrified you think of that. Listen to the but that Jacob brings into it. Oh, he, he says but. Watch this. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I'll seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. What? Instead of saying, but I shouldn't do this, he says, there is a problem. He's very hairy. And so the two of them, and here's the thing, stop sin at the door. The minute an idea to sin comes into your mind, you should stop it right there. But no, they begin to scheme. So now Jacob's fully into this thing. He's like, oh, my mommy's for me. A hundred years old here, okay? So his mother says something very dangerous. Now watch this. She says, let your curse be on me, my son, and obey my voice. Now, I want to pause for a minute and make something very, very clear. There ain't nobody can take your curse for you. That lying mother. Jacob, go ahead and do what I tell you to do. I'll take the curse for you. Nobody can take your curse for you. When you sin against God, you are cursed. How many of you know that? I just did this in youth group the other night. I, I was, it was a real uplifting start to youth group. Welcome, everybody. How you doing? Do you know what karma is? Yeah, okay. Then after that, I said, how many of you have ever lied? How many of you have ever said you hated someone? How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? How many of you have ever stolen something? Who's ever misused God's name? Okay, everybody on every one, all hands went up. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then I took them to the book of Galatians. And you don't have to, if you have a Bible, you don't have to get it out. I'm going to read it for you here. I took them to the book of Galatians. Let me see if I can find it. Chapter 3. And I said, um, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. I said, what does that mean? And they looked at me and said, we're all under a curse. I said, yeah, we're all under a curse. Everybody's under a curse, and your mom can't take it for you, and your dad can't take it for you, and your best friend can't take it for you, you're under a curse. But then, thank God, the Bible says, it goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Amen? Listen. Jesus hung on a tree and became the curse for us. There's only one person who can take your curse, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jacob, unfortunately, gave in to his mother's thoughts. She said, I'll take your curse for you. Obey. Listen to my voice. Don't listen to God's voice. And I have to just add here in Jeremiah 7:23, God says, this command I gave them, obey my voice and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. If you want things to be well with you, whose voice do you have to listen to? God's voice. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate him so you're a king jesus answered you say that i'm a king for this purpose i was born and for this purpose i've come into the world to bear witness to the truth everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice 
When you're involved in lies, you're not listening to Jesus. Okay, he is of the truth. Now let's go on. Okay, so Jacob and his uh, mom, they have thought about the sin. They have started to plan the sin. Now this just gets worse. It just unfolds and gets worse. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son. He goes, she goes into Esau's closet, takes his clothes, puts them on Jacob. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Is this amazing? So they're really going all out. They're putting Esau's clothes on Jacob. He went to his father and he said, my father. And Isaac said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob, with his own voice, he lies and he said, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now this is his father probably lying on a bed blind thinking he might die soon. And Jacob says, I'm Esau. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found the game so quickly, my son? You know, I thought you had to go hunting and get this. How did you find it so quickly? This gets really scary because Jacob commits blasphemy here. He misuses God's name. He draws God into the lie. Look at what he says. Because the Lord your God granted me success. This is heavy, heavy stuff. And I just want to say that whenever we commit a sin, we always draw God into it. Amen? This gets very scary. He comes near. He's committing blasphemy. He's saying that God granted him success. He brings God into the lie. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac who felt him and said, I don't know, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he drank and he drank the wine and he ate. And then Isaac went on to bless Jacob based on the lie. His father Isaac said, near and kiss me my son so he came near and kissed him and isaac smelled the smell of his garments and he blessed him and he said the smell of my son is as the smell of the field may god give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine let people serve you and nations bow down to you be lord over your brothers cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you and jacob received the blessing by committing lie And blasphemy, total sin. And he receives the blessing. And he sealed it with a what? The kiss. Doesn't that remind you of Judas? Okay? The Old and New Testament are so wonderfully tied together. It's just a beautiful picture of even what Judas did. God draw him, you know, Jesus walked with him. Then he betrayed him and he sealed it with a kiss. This guy, Jacob, he's really bad. But how does God identify himself? The God of Jacob. What's up with that? I'm going to show you something. Jacob was a dirty, rotten sinner. Esau was also a dirty, rotten sinner. There was one difference. Jacob was a dirty, rotten sinner who said, I want God. I see something valuable 
in what God could give to me. And I want to say to you tonight that the Holy Spirit is is in this room to say to you, yes, you are a dirty, rotten sinner, but here is the question. Is there anything inside of you that says, but I want God. I want what he has for me. See, the difference between Jacob and Esau was that Esau was completely insensitive to things spiritual. Completely. Watch this. Earlier, years before what we just talked about happened, Jacob was cooking stew and Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And Jacob said, can you imagine, he randomly comes in out of the field, Jacob happens to be cooking and and Jacob just pulls right out of his hat, sell me your birthright now. So you know this is something that had to have been what? On Jacob's mind. He wanted that birthright. And he was just waiting for the moment to seize it. So Esau comes in all hungry, and Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, I love the over-exaggeration here, but we do it all the time, you know. I'll say to somebody, can we go to Wendy's and get ourselves a junior bacon cheeseburger? Because I am starving. I'm not starving. I'm not about to fall over dead. That's what Esau was pulling here. I'm starving. I'm about to die. Who cares about a stupid birthright? So Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. That proves he wasn't starving. You know what I'm saying? A few spoons of soup, a little bit of bread and the guy's walking on his way. He wasn't dying. But the Bible says, thus Esau... What did he do to his birthright? He despised it. Now listen, if you're confused as to why this is a big deal, I'm going to tell you something. As long as there's a spark in you that says, I know I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, but I want what God has for me, then God will work with you. Esau didn't want what God had for him. He didn't care about it. He sold the blessing of God for some soup and bread. It's like he sold his whole destiny. He sold the chance to be the progenitor of the Messiah himself for some Panera bread. It's pathetic. He didn't care. Now, this is why it's so important. The blessing or the birthright would mean that he would receive the inheritance that God had promised to this family line. And look what God had promised. To to Jacob and Esau's grandfather, Abraham, this is what God said. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. To this day, those who curse the Israelites are cursed, and those who bless them are blessed. This is an eternal covenant that God made, and he said to Abraham, through you, every family will be blessed. And what he meant was, Abraham, somewhere down the road, coming from your family line, is going to be Jesus Christ himself. So in despising the birthright, Esau was saying, I don't care about the salvation of God. It doesn't mean much to me. I'm more interested in soup. Now, Jacob was a dirty, rotten sinner. And he went about it completely the wrong way. But obviously, he had been thinking for some time, I want that birthright. I know my Messiah is coming. I want something to do with it. Amen? And that's what mattered. 
to their father, Isaac, God said, Sarah, your wife will bear your son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. This is an everlasting promise going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob or Esau. But who did it go to? Jacob, the cheater, the liar, the blasphemer, but the man. I believe God can save me. Amen? So, he became, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Esau. Is that what it says? Esau is left out. Jesus came through Jacob. Now, Esau's insensitivity to things spiritual, he sold it for soup. It reminds me of Philippians 3, 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul said, I've told you before and I'm telling you again, there are people who live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Now, when it says their God is their stomach, this isn't like picking on people who, who struggle with the sin of gluttony. It, the stomach is representative of something that you fill and then it empties and you have to fill again. Okay? So people who live for what doesn't satisfy, their God is their stomach. If you live for substances that you have to take into your body and they give you a high or they make you feel good for a while and then you've got to have them again to satisfy again, that's the God, your God is your stomach. If you live for physical sensations or sexual relationships, and then when it's over and it's done, you need more and it's empty. Okay, if that's what you're living for, then your mind is on what? Earthly things. Esau was caring about hunting and and food and hunger. He was so unspiritually minded, he didn't care about the things of God. Now, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews actually in the New Testament explains this with Esau. Look at this verse. It says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, this is the New Testament now, who sold his birthright. For a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, this doesn't mean that he couldn't repent before God and God could forgive him. This means he couldn't change his mind about the birthright. He gave it up. It was too late. This is scary. Esau didn't care about what God cared about. Jacob was a sinner, but he was looking to things spiritual. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says, Impulsively, Esau snatched an immediate and sensual gratification at the forfeit of a future glory. Thus, he lost the headship of the people through whom God's redemptive purpose was to be wrought out in the world. Now, contrast that to what the same Bible Encyclopedia says about Jacob. Now, we're going to break this down, and you're going to want to raise your hand and say, Hey, that's me. Watch this. The conspicuous ethical faults of Abraham and Isaac alike are want of candor and want of courage. Now, look, Abraham and Isaac, they were both liars. Do you remember? When they both got in positions of thinking that their wives were pretty and they went to a different country and they were afraid they were going to be killed because people would want their wives, what did they do? Instead of trusting God, they lied. 
They're both liars. They both were cowards and lacked courage at times. And I want to say something here because the Bible says that the sins of, you know, of the fathers are passed down for generations. And so I want to pause and just take a moment to say something. There is something to that. It's biblical. Whatever the sins are in your family line, they will tend to continue on except, praise God, if Jesus breaks the curse. If addiction to substances is something throughout your family line, there's a very good chance you will struggle with that. If sexual sin is way back in your family line, there's a very good chance that's something you will struggle with. You need Jesus to break that. So there's something too, looking back and saying, what are my proclivities? What are my tendencies? Let me yield this to God and understand who I am and really give it to Jesus. Because Jacob too became a liar until God dealt with him. It's not surprising, therefore, to find the same failings in Jacob. Deceit and cowardice are visible again and again in the impartial record of his life. Both spring from unbelief. They belong to the natural man. But God's transformation of this man was wrought by faith, by awakening and nourishing in him a simple trust in the truth and power of the divine word. For Jacob was not at any time in his career indifferent to the things of the spirit, the things unseen, and the things belonging to the future. Unlike Esau, he was not callous to the touch of God. Whether through inheritance or as the fruit of early teaching, he had as the inestimable treasure, the true capital of his spiritual career. Now watch this. A firm conviction of the value of what God had promised and a supreme ambition to obtain it for himself. Now, the fact that you are here tonight shows that whatever kind of dirty, rotten sinner you are, there's something in you that says, I want what God can promise to me. Amen? That's what he's looking for. That's what he's looking for. I love how Holman says it in his dictionary. I, I just, I, I love this. I love this. Throughout the narrative, a persistent faith in the God of the Father shines through. Jacob's life was a story of conflict. How many of you feel like your life is a story of conflict? I'm here, I'm there, I'm this, I'm that, I'm good, I'm bad. I'm okay, watch this. He always seemed to be running from someone or something. Anybody? Okay. From Esau, from Laban, or from the famine in Canaan, his life, like that of all the Israelites, was a checkered history of rebellion and flight. Jacob is no ideal. Jacob's better nature struggled with his sinful self, but what raised Jacob above himself was his reverent, indestructible longing for the salvation of his God. Would anybody in here say to God, I am no ideal. My sinful nature struggles with myself all the time. But God... I have an indestructible longing for you to deliver me. Amen? I love Jacob. Jacob began to realize the supernatural, and here's how it happened. After he cheated his brother Esau, Karen or Bria, could one of you go get me something to drink that has sugar in it? Okay, I think my blood sugar is dropping. Jacob began to realize the supernatural. Now, here's what had happened. After he, after he treat, uh, tr- cheated his blind father from the blessing, he got a little bit scared because his brother Esau, do you know what his brother Esau said? Who knows the story? Esau said what? 
He said, I'm going to wait until I'm done mourning our father, but then I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you for what you've done to me twice. So Jacob is now on the run. And while he's on the run, look what happens. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe if we went somewhere and we laid our head on a stone to sleep, we might have an odd dream too. How these people slept on stones, I don't know. All right. I not only have a regular pillow, I've got a contoured pillow, you know, that molds to my neck and my head. But he lays down and he goes to sleep and he has his first encounter with the supernatural. Thank you. One of my greatest fears is being realized. It's happened before. No, it's not that big of a fear. I mean, I'm not going to faint or anything, but try to keep my blood sugar good and sometimes too good. So I have to drink some juice. All right. Now. So he lays his head down on a stone, and he goes to sleep, and God starts to show him what he's about. Now watch this. Jacob dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder or a staircase set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on that ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What? This guy just lied and cheated and committed blasphemy. This dirty, rotten, no good guy. And God comes down and says, what? I'm going to give you the blessing that I promised to your grandfather and to your father. It's coming to you. I want to tell you something tonight. God never stops chasing you. He's the hound of heaven. He never stops chasing you he doesn't give up on you even when you give up on yourself jacob is now on the run and god opens up heaven and he shows him this ladder and he's showing him hey jacob i know you're down here on the earth but like i'm working on the earth my angels aren't just up there they're also where down here okay now watch this behold i'm with you and i'll keep you wherever you go and i'll bring you back to this land and i won't leave you until i've done what i promised you and listen to what jacob said jacob awoke from his sleep and he said surely the lord was in this place and i didn't even know it and that is what the holy spirit is saying to us this evening some of you are realizing surely the lord is in this sanctuary tonight Surely the Lord has been working in my life, and I didn't even know it. Because like Jacob, some of us have been sinning and scheming and trying to make our life what it's supposed to be in all the wrong ways. And God is saying, you don't have to do that. I am here with you. I'm working on the earth. What Jacob was, what God was realizing in Jacob, what he was showing him, is the intersection of heaven and earth. He was showing that heaven and earth are directly connected. Philippians 3.20 says, 
Unlike the people whose mind is on earthly things, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I don't know how many of you realize this, but when that verse says that our citizenship is right now in heaven, it doesn't say our citizenship will one day be in heaven. It says our citizenship is now in heaven. You're like, but I'm stuck on the earth. Yeah, but that word citizenship there means this. It means the administration of your affairs. Oh, you got to love this. My feet are on the earth. I'm living in this world. But the boss of what happens to me is in heaven. Amen? God works on the actual earth on my behalf. Watch this. The intersection of heaven and earth is the stuff of Acts 16. How many of you remember the story Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel? They got beaten and put in stocks and were in prison. Do you remember this? And what did they decide to do? They decided to pray and sing hymns to God while their feet were still in stocks. And what did God do? The Bible says, came down and he literally broke their chains and opened the prison doors. Now, wait a second. Do you understand what happened here? They sent up a spiritual prayer and God worked physically on the earth. You with me? It reminds me of Daniel 6.22. When Daniel had to go into the lion's den, do you know what Daniel said was the reason he was spared? He said God's angel reached down into the pit and shut the mouths of the lions. So God, David sent up, Daniel sent up a spiritual prayer and God sent down a literal, you know, as if there were a literal hand and he closed the mouths of the lions. He works on this earth on our behalf. Now, here's the key. The intersection of heaven and earth is the stuff of 1 Peter 2.24. Here's what the Bible says. Now listen to this. It says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So what's happening here is God who is in heaven came to earth, put on flesh. His name is Jesus. And physically he came to earth, died on a cross and bore our sin so that we could be healed from our sinfulness. That verse says, by his stripes you are Healed. That's not a physical healing there. There, that's a spiritual healing. And what God was showing Jacob was, and what I hope he's showing you right now, is this. I can reach down in the pew where you're sitting right now, and I can heal you from your sinful ways and make you able to be right. That's what God was trying to show Jacob. This was the key to Jacob's change, the intersection of heaven and earth. Now, watch this, just in case you don't believe me. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. Watch what Jesus said. Jesus called Philip. Philip got his friend, you know, got Nathaniel to come with Jesus. And Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay? And Nathaniel said, um, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. And Jesus said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you think I'm the son of God. Like that little old thing, 
Because I knew where you were. That's why you think that I'm the Son of God. He said, greater things than these you're going to see. And watch what Jesus said. Jesus identified himself here as Jacob's ladder. Look at this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on who? The Son of Man. That's a title for Jesus. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, says, I am Jacob's ladder. I am the way between heaven and earth. Jacob, I'm the way that you are going to be changed. Even in the Old Testament, Jesus appears. Now, before we go to the last confrontation, the thing that finally got Jacob turned around, I want you to understand something. When Jacob had this vision, he then ended up with his uncle Laban. And the reason he did, because he was running, all right, when he found out that Esau wanted to kill him, both his parents said, you better go to your uncle's house in Haran, because you're in trouble here. So Jacob went. And he was going to go find a wife in Haran with his uncle Laban. Now, while he was there, a terrible thing happened to the poor guy. He worked seven years to get a wife from his uncle Laban. And he wanted the prettier wife. And when it came time for him to get the pretty wife, Laban cheated him and gave him the wrong one. The one he didn't want. Okay? And so then he had to work seven more years to get the wife that he preferred. And while he worked all this time, Laban cheated him on his wages ten different times. And the thing is, so while Jacob was in Haran with his uncle Laban, what happened to him? He got back to him exactly what he had done. He was cheated and deceived and lied to. And so you might tempted to be saying, well, Shelley, that's karma. You get what goes around comes around. You get what you do. No, this is not karma. This is not some cosmic principle out there. Not do- This is a personal God working. Listen to what Frank Boyd said about this. He said, the Lord took Jacob through a series of experiences which reflected back to him in a mirror his own perverseness. He, re- he deceived his father and brother, but Laban, his uncle, deceived him ten times. He received a large dose of what he himself had given to others. This was not karma. This was God trying to show him, you're a mess. And what you do is nasty. And you need to understand the consequences of deception and lying and scheming. This was a personal God showing him something to improve him. This wasn't the personless law of karma. But at the Brook Jabbok, which we're going to look at in a minute, the grace of God engaged in battle with him. And in the struggle which ensued, the sinful Jacob died. And from the grave rose a new creature, Israel, the overcomer. Now listen to me. It's not reincarnation. You don't have to be born again in the flesh. You have to be born again in the spirit. See the key here? Yes, Jacob had to die. The old Jacob had to die. But God was going to raise up a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, here's the final scene that we're going to go to. Here is how Jacob was finally changed. And it's simple. if If you don't know this, you're going to be amazed by how simple it is that God works with us. Watch this. 
after Jacob had been cheated by Laban and he was going to go back to his hometown, he started back and he knew eventually he was going to have to deal with Esau. But before that happened, he arose and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the dawn. Now listen. The first thing that happens is Jacob is left alone. You can't do business with God with anybody but yourself. You get alone with God and this is what happened. A man wrestled with him until dawn. Now some Bible scholars believe that this man was an angel of the Lord. And many Bible scholars believe what I personally believe, that this is called a Christophany, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-A-N-Y. I'm going to write it on the board. I believe this is a Christophany, or an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Watch this. Whether you believe it was an angel of the Lord or Jesus Christ himself, a man wrestled with Jacob. Now, here we go. All night they wrestled. And when the man, when God, when Jesus saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So they're wrestling all night, physically wrestling. And God sees I'm not going to, like, this guy's not going to give up. I can't prevail against him. He keeps wrestling with me. That's what God sees, okay? When God saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, God took his hand and he touched Jacob's hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled him. Now, I've never had a hip put out of joint, but I'm not thinking that feels too good. And I am thinking that if you're in a wrestling match and you've been wrestling all night, and now it's getting towards morning, and now your hips out of joint too, it's you're going to be having a rough time of it. And if at that point you still want to wrestle, then baby, you want something, don't you? Amen? Jacob wanted something. Now I want you to think with me. Just get emotional with me for a minute. Read the emotion into this. Who knows how old Jacob is at this point, but the man has been a liar and a deceiver and a cheater from the moment he came out of the womb. Do you think he's sick of himself? He's been cheated by Laban. God showed him what a horror and a disaster he is. He's running from Esau. He's running from his uncle Laban. He's mad. He's angry. The world has done him wrong. He's guilty of his sin. He doesn't know where he is with God. This is emotional. And this guy finally comes to a point where he says, God, now I'm going to wrestle with you. I'm done with it. I can't take it anymore. And I'm going to fight with you and wrestle with you, God, until you bless me and make me who I'm supposed to be. Who has ever been at that point? Sometimes we're there once. I've been there a couple times. God wants you there again. You keep fighting. And even when God, you know, he gives him the real test to put his hip out of joint, this guy is still fighting. And so the angel of the Lord, Jesus, said, let me go because the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay. All the history of this guy, all the guilt, 
All the conflict, all the running, come down to this moment. God showed him, Jacob, I really am with you. There's a way to me. Now he's wrestling with him. He's wrestled all night. His hips out of joint. He's in misery. He's in pain. God says, you know, let's stop. It's almost morning. Jacob says, I will not. If I die trying, I will keep wrestling you until you bless me. And here's what it all comes down to. This just amazes me. And so God said to him, he asked him one question. All this wrestling, all this business, hip out of joint, it all came down to one thing. This is the one thing God had wanted the whole time, but he had to get Jacob to the point where he would realize what he needed. Watch this. He says to him, what is your name? You understand? Isn't the Bible exciting when you, when you see it this way? Okay, we need, we need to watch the whole narrative, the whole progression. So he's wrestling. You can just picture the sweat. You know, I don't know what's going on. And Jacob's panting there. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. And Jacob's, you know, probably at the end of his robe. And God says, here's all I want to know. What is your name? Do you know why God wanted him to say his name? Because his name was his character. And so Jacob looked God in the face and said, I am a liar. I am a deceiver. I am a schemer. I am a cheater. He said all that by looking at God and saying, I am Jacob, he who grabs by the heel and takes by cheating and lying and deceiving. In a nutshell, God wanted Jacob to look at God and say, I've done everything the wrong way. I'm a mess. And the minute Jacob said, I'm a mess, guess what God did? Okay. Your name's no longer going to be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And in that instant, God changed the man's name because your name meant your character. In that instant, Jacob was redeemed. God said, now your name will be Israel. And just in case you didn't know, the word Israel, it's a little bit fuzzy as to the exact words that it means, but it has something to do with on him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. That hip, what God touched and put out a socket, he didn't heal. He left it with Jacob as a reminder. You belong to me. You wrestled with me. You did business with me. And in your weakness, I am strong. Amen? And therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, I would say to you, that night when Jacob wrestled with God all night long, his wrestling with God, his dealing with God was his greatest need. Before Jacob wrestled with God, right before that encounter, here's what he said. He said to God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he will come and attack me. Do you know when you're not right with God, you have all kind of fears. Amen? 
your sins haunt you, makes you fearful, makes you nervous, makes you miserable. Before Jacob wrestled with God, he was afraid of what Esau was going to do. But look what God does. After he wrestled with God, look what Esau did. Esau, the hairy red man, the unsaved, unholy, immoral man, according to Hebrews, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. God can bring reconciliation where your sin has brought tragedy. Amen? And these two embraced. But remember that Esau had hated Jacob and he said, I'm going to kill him. But that's not what happened. Because Jacob did business with God. And here's what I'd want to end with. In the book of Hebrews, how many of you know that Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith? Do you know who one of the people in the Hall of Faith is? Jacob. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There are two things you have to do to have faith. You have to believe that God exists so you can't be an atheist. Okay. How many of you have passed that test? But there's another one. You have to believe that God exists, but you have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. I'm going to tell you what. As rotten and sinful, as nasty as Jacob was, he sought God. He looked for God. He longed for God. There is not a person in this sanctuary, especially including me, there is not a person in here who is not a sinner. The question is, are we seeking after God? And then Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And then at the end of Hebrews, I love this, speaking of Jacob and all the others named there, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Nobody's going to be perfect in this life, nor is life going to be perfect here. But the Bible says that we are waiting for a day when all together with the Old Testament saints, we will all receive the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. Amen? When everybody is finally made right, when the earth itself is redeemed and we are redeemed. And I love to read that because now that I know Jacob so well, I love to read that. God provided something better for Shelley Prindle. That apart from Shelley Prindle, Jacob should not be made perfect. That's what it's saying. It says that there's coming a day when I will walk beside my friend Jacob and we will all experience the supreme goodness of God because we were seeking him. We were pathetic sinners who said, I won't give up. I will wrestle with God till he makes me who I'm supposed to be. And this is the last slide. Now check this out. After all that happened to Jacob, for the first time in his life, he set up an altar. Before he had set up pillars and and different memorials, but he had never set up an altar, a place of sacrifice. So he set up his first altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel. You know what that means? He set up an altar, and for the first time in his life, he could say this with full confidence. He called it El Elohe Israel. This is what it means. God. The God of Israel. 
When you say that, I want you to think from it. We think of Israel and we think of a country, a nation. But do you realize that it all derives from one man? He was saying that about himself. He was saying, for the first time, I can look up with a clean conscience and say, that God, the God of the universe, the God that made the heavens and the earth, that God, he is the God of me. Do you see that? And for the first time in his life, he could say, that God is not the God of a cheater and a liar. He's the God of a man who ran after God and God touched. Amen? But still throughout the scriptures, we read the God of Jacob. And Jacob says, He's the God of Israel. Hallelujah. That God can be your God. That God you can be at total peace with through Jesus Christ. 